0: We are in week three of a series. We've been uh, going through this series called Questioning God. And really, what we're seeking to do in this series is essentially answer the questions that people are asking. So uh, one of the things that we kind of hold on to um, dearly here at West Village, like tightly, and we just think it's really important, is that the church would see themselves uh, like missionaries, that the 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 mission of, uh, sorry, God has a mission, and his mission is fulfilled through his church. His church is to reach uh, the city of Victoria, it's to reach the earth, it's to fill it with his glory. And so we want to posture ourselves as missionaries and say, like, this thing doesn't exist just Just for those of us who know Jesus, but we all wanna actually reach our city. And so one of the ways that we can do that is by actually trying to answer questions that people that aren't a part of this community yet don't know Jesus yet are actually asking. And so that's what we're setting out to do in this series is we're we're setting out to actually answer questions that people that don't know Jesus yet are asking. Some of the times, not all the time, but oftentimes churches are answering questions that nobody's even asking. And we want to say like, what are those questions? And so this series is a little bit different. Normally what we do is we just kind of go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And and we've been going through the series, uh, a series on the gospel of Matthew for a long time. And we'll come back to that after this series, uh, but in this series we want to pause, and, and it's a little bit of a different feel. It's a little bit more like a lecture than it is like a sermon. In fact, this week is going to be uh, very much like a lecture, and some of you've been loving it, uh, and some of you've been hating it. Like last week, I said to my wife, I said, "So, baby, what do you think of uh, what do you think of the sermon this morning?" He's like, "I don't know. I checked out like halfway through. Super boring, uninteresting to me." I'm like, sweet, baby. Thanks for pumping the tires. That's awesome. Um, and so some of you may be in my wife's camp where you're like, man, can you just tell me about Jesus? I just want to hear about Jesus. And we will tell you about Jesus, I promise. So just hang with me. Um, but but some of you are like really digging this. You're digging the intellectual stuff. You're digging like just kind of asking some of these questions and wrestling through some of the arguments and the thoughts. Uh, and really our aim here this morning and this whole series isn't like to uh, convince anyone that doesn't believe in God to believe in God. Really, we're asking kind of this one, like, if there's a meta question or a big question that we're asking through this series, it's what makes the most sense out of the lived human experience? Uh, Reality as we see it, as we face it, as we understand it, as we're experiencing it as human beings, what actually makes the most sense of the world that I see, that I feel, that I experience? And our contention, obviously, spoiler alert, is that that is Jesus. And so that's kind of what we've been unpacking. Week one, we sought to answer the question, isn't religion going away? Last week we uh, sought to answer the question, uh, what was the question we sought to answer last week? Isn't religion based on faith and secularism based on science? And then today's question that we're going to answer is, is it possible to hold convictions without oppressing others? Is it possible to hold convictions without oppressing oppressing others. And I'm going to lean heavily on my notes this morning for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, this is not necessarily an area that, that I'm like super well-versed, like this isn't my wheelhouse in terms of like uh, talking about some of this stuff. And so I don't want to deviate too far from my notes. The other thing is, is because I don't think you brought a lunch. And so sometimes when I get on a tangent, I can go for a while, and so I want to stick to the script, I want to make sure I communicate clearly, and I don't want to go too far down any rabbit trails, and I can definitely be uh, inclined to do so. So let's answer that question this morning. Is it possible to hold convictions without oppressing others? Now, why is this a relevant question? My suspicion is—I mean, my lived experience—but but also my suspicion is that if you were just to go around uh, in the culture, talk to your neighbors, talk to people that that maybe uh, would identify as like sort of a hard, ironclad atheist, someone who is just decided that there is no God, uh, but also people who would identify as what we've been calling espionaries, spiritual but not religious. They have sort of a belief in God, a belief in the metaphysical, a belief, uh, you know, that there there is a God out there and somehow they're connected to to this God, but they're they're not into religion, that these people would all think that religion in some way is like a straitjacket for the mind, That, that it has this way of working in a human being where religion claims to have absolute truth, and if you don't believe that absolute truth, that you are somehow on the outside. And what it eventually leads to is it leads to a person limiting their own ability to ascertain truth. Uh, They start to, and again, this is the, the perception of religion, that they start to believe truth that comes down from an ivory tower, Uh, It leads to groupthink, where the average person is forced to just check their brain at the door. And the result of this is that a person, a a people, a people group, if you will, ends up becoming less agreeable and less open minded. And so the question we want to dig into a little bit this morning is is this the case? Is it possible to have deep convictions about truth? Is it possible to have a strong moral center, to have convictions about the way in which the world works best, and still at the same time, not oppress other people, and so I'm just going to lay out where I'm going to go this morning. Because this is going to this is going to be the, of the three that we've preached so far. This is going to be the most lecture-y, Okay, uh, so I'm going to lay out exactly where we're going to go, so you can help, uh, f- or so I can help you rather follow along. So we're going to do three things this morning. Here's my aim. The first one is this: I want to try and diagnose the problem appropriately. The second thing is I want to demonstrate how our cultural response to the problem actually falls short. And then at the end, I want to demonstrate how the Christian story actually provides the best resources for tolerance and diversity. So first, let's start by helping us all together understand this problem. Like, how did we get to the place that this question is even an issue that we're wrestling with? So so if you just kind of take a look at uh, the the landscape of human history, what you're going to see is in the last, I don't know, probably about, 50 years or so, but it's growing uh, with an increased uh, rapidity. What we're seeing is that globalization is absolutely changing and transforming the way that the world works. Now, when I talk about globalization, what I'm talking about is the way in which the world is integrated. So previously, you know, it was very difficult to get from one country to another country. It was very difficult for religious ideas to cross-pollinate. It was very uh, difficult for cultural ideas to cross-pollinate because it was hard for us to interact with one another. But over the last 50 years, and as I said, with the dawn of the internet, with the dawn of things like air travel, uh, what started to happen is that we're starting to see pluralistic countries uh, come to pass. So this is happening specifically in a a very real way in the West. Uh, What's happening in the West, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, I'm just saying these are the facts. In the Western world, where the societies are becoming increasingly secular, what is starting to happen, and this is, again, this is just the data, secular people, on average, have less and less children. The more educated you are and the less religious you are, the less likely you are to have a large family. And so what's happening in the Western world is that our current economy, our culture, our society, the way it is set up, it's not sustainable. We we actually have to have things like immigration, In order to sustain our culture and to build out our economy. There's no other way for for these things to happen in the Western world. And so what this has done, and again, I'm not saying this is good or bad. This is just what's happening is this has brought all kinds of conflict into the Western world. We have conflict about uh, racism. We have conflict about religion. We have cultural conflict. And we've had to figure out how to not just coexist with these different pockets of religious and and cultural people coming together, but how do we actually thrive with such radically different religious, moral, economic, and cultural values coming into collision with one another? How is it that we're going to actually coexist and thrive as a community? So really, the question that we're trying to answer, the question that culture is trying to answer, is how is it that we are all going to get along? One author wrote this about globalization. It said that globalization means we have to re-examine some of our ideas and look at ideas from other countries, from other cultures, and open ourselves to them. And that is not comfortable for the average person. And so the fruit of globalization, the fruit that globalization has produced in our society, in particular in the West, is that tolerance has become the highest cultural value. We have to be tolerant of other cultures. We have to be tolerant of other ideas. We have to be tolerant of other ways of life. While at the same time, other cultures, other ways of life, other religions have to be tolerant of us. It's actually essential for our survival. And so the real problem for us is asking the question, how do we do this? How do we navigate these waters? Now, if you were just to take sort of a cursory look at our cultural landscape in this cultural moment that we're living in, and you were to evaluate us in terms of how we're doing, uh, rhetorical question here, okay? I don't want any answers out loud. How do you think it's going? Not so great. For all our advancements in terms of technology and uh, education and economic advancements, we still live in a culture where systemic racism and sexism are alive and well. Uh, We still live in a culture uh, where uh, you know we have what, what, what is called like an outrage culture or a cancel culture, where if a a politician or a celebrity has ever at any point in their history done anything that could be judged by today 's standards as unethical, racist, or sexist uh, the the internet, the keyboard warriors the culture flocks to their Uh, superiors, it flocks to their networks, it flocks to their political parties, and seeks to have that person punished. Regardless of how um, uh, innocent their motivation might have been, regardless of whether they apologize or not, uh, they have their reputation tarnished, they lose their jobs, and they are deemed forever they've been put in the penalty box. Uh, We see limitations placed on our freedom of speech, where jobs are literally lost and lives are ruined because of sharing their own opinions. Uh, this week, and listen, I want to be clear about something because I can hear the tone and tenor of my voice. And So what I'm not saying is poor us white religious people. Some of you are hearing that right now. You're right. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying these are just the realities of the day. Politically in the West, things have become a circus, where no longer can two people or two political parties just have differing opinions on how a country should be governed or on various uh, policies. Now those two people have to demonize one another and weaponize their ideas. And it's not us together trying to figure out how to coexist and live and govern our culture and country. It's us against them. And this is just as much a problem in Canada as it is in the United States. And so we have to ask some hard questions. I I think we are asking hard questions as a culture. But how do we respond to this? How How do we hold deeply held convictions without oppressing other people? So that's the problem. Let's talk a little bit about the cultural response. So in response to globalization, the globalization that has been taking place in our culture, the West has started to make and this is a little bit of cultural anthropology here, the the West has started to make a shift from what I would call modernity to post-modernity. So modernity simply meaning a time where truth was concrete, where there were moral and cultural and scientific and religious absolutes, where there was something you could actually anchor truth to. That's modernity, and we've shifted and been shifting for some time from moderni- modernity to what is called post-modernity. And post-modernity is a time marked by a general attitude of skepticism specifically towards any absolute truth claims and any claims on authority. Uh, one philosopher, Jean-Francois Lyotard, defined post-modernism as incredulity towards all meta-narratives. So what is a meta-narrative? And this is important. This is very important for our conversation today. A meta-narrative is a totalizing, as in totalitarian, theory which aims to consume all events, all perspectives, and all forms of knowledge in a comprehensive explanation. That's what a meta-narrative is. You need to grapple with that. In other words, a meta-narrative is a system of thought that tries to explain all of reality. It it tries to take it's a claim of truth that tries to, to make sense of everything as we know it. There's all kinds of meta-narratives that have existed and do exist in our culture as we know it. So, for example, one of the meta-narratives that we've been talking about a lot in this series are, is naturalism. Naturalism is a meta-narrative. Naturalism is simply the belief that there is nothing that exists outside of the natural world; that there is no God, there there is no metaphysics; everything can be and is explained uh, through the five senses. If you can't test it with the scientific method, it cannot be true. And so that, that meta-narrative actually tells a story about reality. It says that, that, that we were uh, made not by a God, but that we, we evolved out of nothing a cosmic big ba- big bang. We have no idea where we came from, we have no idea where we're going, but we're just highly evolved animals that live on this planet. That's a meta-narrative that defines reality for us. Western capitalism is a, is a meta-narrative. It's a meta narrative that informs how we view the world. That's why, and again, I I don't want to like step on toes here, but like a lot of what we have embraced and have lived under is, is functionally propaganda that tells us that the way that we do life is the best way to do life. And everyone else needs to do life the way that we do life. And if we could just get the rest of the world to do life the way that we do life, the world would be a better place. There may be some truth to that. But we have to admit that that's a a meta-narrative, and that has driven much of our economic policies as the Western world. It's it's driven much of our uh, geopolitical uh, policies, the way that we do war. All these things have been driven through this lens of our way is the best way. Our reality is the best reality, and everyone needs to conform to our reality. Religion is a meta-narrative. Religion that, that explains that, that there is a God who made you, there is a God who knows you, there is a God who loves you, and there is a God who desires for you to live a certain way and, and order your life in a certain way. That's a meta narrative that defines reality. Now, stop and think about this with me for a second. What postmodernism is saying actually, on some level, makes sense. What postmodernism is saying is that meta narratives are dangerous. Because with a meta-narrative, there's an insider and there's an outsider. There's a hero, there's a villain. There's a right way, there's a wrong way. And if you look back over history, just with some of the examples I cited, it's easy to see that, that we have been given all kinds of meta-narratives that have been extremely harmful to the human race. They've been uh, caused irreparable damage and destruction. Nazism, for example, is a meta-narrative that did horrible things. Christianity, if you look back into its past, at times, has been responsible for much injustice in the world. And so perhaps on some level, the claim of postmodernism actually has some substance that meta-narratives are dangerous that they create a a power dynamic that leaves those on the outside of the story oppressed and marginalized. And this current cultural moment that we're living in is the fruit of that idea. Now, thanks for the history lesson and the cultural anthropology lesson, Chris. That's wonderful. What's the point? Why is this relevant? Here's why. Remember the question. Is it possible to hold convictions without oppressing others? Is it possible to hold convictions without oppressing others? See what postmodernism was trying to say was why can't we all just get along? But the means by which they attempted to get there was by rejecting all meta narratives. So what's the problem? Seems like a decent idea. Well, last week if you were here, we talked about this idea of doubting your doubts. Or if you're gonna deconstruct an idea or a worldview, you have to go all the way with it. You have to you have to deconstruct right down to the very bottom of your idea. So the problem with postmodernism and this idea of rejecting meta narratives is the postmodernists didn't actually deconstruct far enough. So they didn't doubt their doubts, and they said we have to reject all meta narratives. But in so doing, here's what they've done: they've made the rejection of all meta narratives become the new meta narrative. It's become the totalitarian thought. It has become the new absolute, the new religion, if you will, in this cultural moment. And you don't have to look very far to see how that's the case. Uh, there's a term I'm, I'm sure. You, many of you are familiar with it, but we have this term, this idea, social justice warriors, SJWs, right? Social justice warriors who who are desperate to pursue justice for the marginalized and oppressed, to which I say yes and amen. The problem isn't that, the problem is the means by which that gets lived out. The problem is that it comes with a totalitarian bent to it that says, believe our way, think our way, or else. It comes with pressing ideas on people and forcing them to conform, at times using social pressure, as things progress, legal pressure. Again, I don't want to play the the victim card here, okay? This isn't the poor, white, male, Christian victim card, but this week I was in Vancouver uh, and I was meeting with a group of church planters, and one of the church planters has planted a church in downtown uh, Toronto, and he has a a large church, about eight or 900 people, highly educated, lots of lawyers, doctors are in this church, and they did a study or a survey, and, and again, this isn't hard scientific data, this is just a how-do-you-feel question, but 40% of their church said that they believed if their superiors found out that they were... Orthodox Christians and hold, held traditional views when it comes to what the Bible teaches about sexuality, marriage, Jesus, and just some of the things that Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years, that it would impede their ability to actually get a promotion. 14% of his congregation said that they believe that at some point after finding this out, they would lose their job. Again, there's no, there's no way to prove that that's the case. That's just the feel. There's this sort of social pressure to conform and that's not unique to us that's just the, the current reality we live in. If you're outside of the norm or the perceived to be norm, there's a pressure to conform. Why? Well, listen to this quote by Tim Keller. This is good. Tongue twister. If you're intolerant of people you think are intolerant, you're being intolerant. Intolerance of intolerance is still intolerance. I mean, never is this more real than, and again, like, this is like, Chris, choose your words carefully. Here, uh, you're walking on landmines, so be extremely careful. But this week, what happened to our Prime Minister? Was it a bad decision? Sure. Maybe. I don't know. 20 years ago, it probably actually wasn't a bad decision, which may speak to some of the problem. he apologized he said i'm sorry please forgive me my gosh i am so thankful that social media didn't exist when i when i was 20 like come on and and here's how here's how totalitarianism works okay and some of you aren't going to like this but There's people I know that are believers in Jesus that used what happened to our prime minister this week against him. Because the meta narrative they subscribe to is actually a political meta narrative, not a Christian ethic. It's a problem. It's a problem. So all we've done in our culture is we've created a new absolute, a new meta narrative, and if you don't get in line, look out. So what what I want to do here, really quickly, is ask an important question, which is why did this fail? Why did postmodernism fail? Why did this idea of the rejection of all meta narratives fail? And, And here's here's my, this is my opinion, that it was built on a faulty premise. Now, I'm not speaking primarily about a logical fallacy, although I think postmodernism is completely rooted in a logical fallacy. Postmodernism is rooted in the idea that there can be no absolute truth, that there's no way to ascertain absolute truth. And if you ever bump into somebody who's like a, a relativist, right, they, they believe truth is relative, here's all you have to do. Do you absolutely believe there are no absolutes? Yes, I absolutely believe that. Now, I went to public school, but that doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so yes, it's rooted in a logical fallacy, but that's not actually what I want to talk about this morning. What I want to talk about is this, this sense, and I don't even have a word. I was trying to figure out a word to describe what I'm, what I'm seeking after, and I, and I don't even have a word for it. But it's, the faulty premise is, is not just logical, it, it's much deeper than that. It's, like, it's cultural, it's social, it, in a sense, it's almost spiritual. There's a spiritual fallacy built into this idea of postmodernism that says that we can actually fix ourselves. Because the postmodern version of truth, here's what it does, and, and this is where the problem lies, in my opinion, is that it puts humanity at the center. It makes the human the arbiter of all truth. It's built on the notion that we, you and me, can overcome the oppressive regimes, we can o- overcome the oppressive societies and cultures. And we can establish a culture that is loving, inclusive, and tolerant. We can do this. But the problem is, this is a human problem here, we will always transcendentalize our ideas. Transcendentalize just meaning take our ideas and make them preeminent, make them all surpassing. And so what starts off as a noble pursuit of tolerance and acceptance, when turned into a meta-narrative, when turned into a transcendental idea, becomes oppressive. And so the spirit of this age that we currently live in is that the solution to the world's problems is us, that we have to believe in ourselves to overcome our problems. But here's the problem with that problem. We're the ones that made the mess. So, what does all this mean? What does this boil down to? Here's, here's where I'm going with this. The issue, then, isn't if you subscribe to a particular meta-narrative. We talked about this last week, but every single person subscribes to a meta-narrative. Every single person has a faith position. Every single person believes in something that governs their world, governs how they, they understand morality, governs how they live their lives. So the problem isn't, you know, if you have a meta-narrative. The issue is what meta-narrative do you subscribe to? In other words, what is your worldview built on? How does it inform your life? How does it call you to respond to those who don't agree with you? What resources does it provide to navigate the landmine that is our current cultural reality? How does it instruct you to respond in traffic when you are late for a meeting? Or how does it respond you uh, inform you rather to respond when you're standing in line at a grocery store and the person is taking too long and you have somewhere to be? How does it inform you to respond to somebody who isn't playing by the rules, you know, the unspoken rules that exist in your neighborhood, that your grass is supposed to be this high and your front yard is supposed to look like this? And how does it inform you to respond to somebody who does something mean to you or doesn't agree with you or says something harsh to you? How does it inform how you respond to a boss who is maybe domineering or who has passed you up for a promotion? How does it inform how you respond to the person at your school or your workplace that no one else wants to talk to? Because the issue is you believe something about the world and it informs everything that you do. And so the question we have to ask isn't, do do we believe something it's what do we believe what do we have faith in because at this point at those points when when rubber hits the road what you believe actually matters as theologian and philosopher Richard Bachman writes we need a story that once again affirms universal values while resists their co-option by the forces of domination In short, we need a non-totalizing meta-narrative, a non-oppressive absolute. You can't get away from absolutes. It's foolish to think you can. And so the question isn't, do you have absolutes? It's, what are your absolutes rooted in? What informs how you live your life? Now, here's where I think the Christian story has something interesting to say into this situation. So if everything I've said thus far is true. If the issue isn't meta narrative, the issue is the source of the meta narrative, then I think Christianity says something different to our culture than we've ever heard. If you do have a Bible, we got there. Open it up. Matthew chapter five. Verses will be on the screen. These are verses that we've actually taught through earlier this year. And this is the beginning of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, as we described it back when we taught through it, is what we were calling the Constitution of the Kingdom. This is what Jesus tells us it's going to look like when He has rule and reign, when He has dominion and authority, when He when He brings His kingdom to bear. And and His kingdom is functionally a meta narrative. It's. It's a better meta-narrative, but it is a meta-narrative. It's, it's something that informs all of reality. This is the Jesus meta-narrative. And I just want you to hear the words, so picking up in verse uh, verse three, it says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted." Now just so you understand, the word "Blessed" actually means flourishing." Or another way you could translate it is, "It would go well with you if." Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets were before you. Who were before you, sorry. I want to ask you a question. Imagine a world that was governed by this narrative. Where the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Those are the ones who are blessed. Those are the things that we live in pursuit of. Imagine with me for a second how different your life would look if it was governed by those things. Imagine how your, your driving would change if it was governed by what is known as the Beatitudes. Imagine how your social media activity would be different if it was governed. Imagine how your marriage would be different. Imagine how different your interactions with your neighbors, your friends, your community would be. Uh, Imagine how different you would view those who disagree with you, even on issues that you hold dearly, would be. See, the issue isn't... Do you believe something? The issue is, what do you believe? The issue, the issue isn't what uh, do you have, uh, if you have faith, the issue is what you have faith in. The issue really comes down to what worldview do you hold on to and how does it inform the way that you live? This worldview, a person who is governed by these realities, the realities of the kingdom of Jesus, would be able to hold deep convictions while at the same time, not oppressing others. And the question is why? What is it about the Christian story that makes these the understood dominant characteristics? Why did Jesus start here when he laid out what his kingdom looks like? think about this with me again for a second. If all truth claims, if all metanarratives eventually lead to domination because the human is placed at the center, what happens when the human is placed at the center? We become the hero. This is, the, this is why you bump into religious people and you think of them as proud. You think of them as hypocrites because what religion ultimately espouses is that God is up in heaven and we are down here on earth and that we have to climb a moral or religious ladder in order to get to God. But the Christian story, the, the, the Christian meta narrative, the Jesus story tells us a very different picture of reality. It tells us a very different, paints a very different picture for the world as we know it. What it reveals to us, what we see as we walk through the story of God, as is told in the Bible, is that God is the one who is at the center of the story, not you and me. And that his repeated choice over and over and over again isn't the best, isn't the the choicest, isn't the wisest, but rather it's the dominated. It's the weak. It's the oppressed. It's the wretched. It's the powerless. It's the marginal. And so what we see in the Bible is the story of a God who always chooses to work through weakness. It's very different. The things that are celebrated through the pages of Scripture are not the things that our culture celebrates. Now, why? Why is that? Because the culmination of the story of Jesus is the life and death of Jesus. And what we see at the, at the center of the story is the, the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus. Now think about this with me for a second, friends. Think, okay? I know this is not the most exciting uh, message you've ever listened to, but, but now I want you to lean in and press in here for a second. Think about Jesus. Think about the way in which he came from heaven to earth. Uh, this is Jesus, God with skin on. He humbles himself and enters into creation. But, but how does he enter? He enters as a baby, born to an unwed, preteen um, lady named Mary. He, he comes and he's, he has to learn how to walk. He has to learn how to talk. He has to be fed. He has to have his diaper changed. He humbles himself and submits himself to creation. He was born in a rural town that no one had ever heard of, and he never went more than just a few miles from that town. He never held political office. He never wrote a book. He never did anything that by the the standards of the culture would have been deemed as impressive in any way. If you and I were going to write this story and we were going to try and build a a, a worldview or a religion or we were going to come as the God of the universe, we would not come the way that Jesus came, yet he came humbly. And then he lives most of his adult life as a humble Galilean peasant, functionally homeless, unimpressive in every way. And how does his life end? The cross. Jesus dies a disgraceful death, a death that was deserved and reserved for criminals. He was deserted by his friends and family, and Jesus, out of all the religions, out of all the narratives, out of all the worldviews, is the only one who died in such a disgraceful way. And again, we must ask the question, why? Why does God choose to reveal himself this way? Because etched into the very essence and the heart of the Christian story is humility. We have a God who humbles himself. Why? So that we can know him. Every other religion teaches that you have to get to God, but Christianity comes in and says God humbles himself, enters into broken creation, and comes and pursues you. It recognizes that we, we were and at times still are spiritually impoverished. And God made himself weak. He made himself become impoverished so that we could have right relationship with God with God. And here's what happens. When you know a love like that, when you, when you know a God who loves you like that, it changes you. It produces in you a deep humility that was never there, where you can actually love your enemy. Because you recognize that you were once an enemy of God, And he humbled himself and forgave you. It allows you to be gracious and patient with those who disagree with you. Why? Because you disagree with God and you rebel against God and yet he comes in and humbly pursues you. And so, the Christian story, the very essence of the Christian story is humility, love, and grace. And that then becomes the defining reality of the life of the person who is a follower of Jesus. I'm going to close with a story. I'll invite the band to come up as I close. Some of you may remember this story, but in 2006, in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, there was a, an Amish community, small rural community. There's an Amish community out on the outskirts of town. And a man who'd lived in that town for his whole life, he was actually the, the, the man who delivered the milk. So he actually was very involved in the community, similar to the mailman, would have known everybody. One day, for whatever reason, he got in his car and drove out into this Amish community, and he walked into this small one-room schoolhouse with a gun. And he shot and killed 10 young Amish girls. And then he took the gun and turned it on himself and killed himself. It's a tragic story. In fact, if you go home and Google it, they are still writing stories about that story. Not because of the tragedy, although it was indeed tragic, but because of the response of the Amish community to that event. The day that that event occurred. The day that those 10 young girls were shot and killed that obviously just crippled this community. The men from uh, the Amish community went into town and they went to the, the house of the now deceased man where he had a widowed wife and three young children. And they went to offer condolences and seek to comfort the woman. The community recognized that this woman was now on her own. She had no husband to provide for the family, and so the family started to collect money to help pay for this now single mother to be able to live. On the day of uh, her husband's funeral, this was a nationally uh, noted story, reporters came, the men from the Amish community came to the funeral. And then afterwards, they stood outside of the church where the funeral was held, and they actually created a barrier so that the mother and the child could leave the funeral without having to be bombarded by all the reporters. The Washington Post, when writing about this 10 years later, I just caught my eye when I was reading about it they described the response of the Amish community as delusional forgiveness. Radical grace. Radical humility. Radical forgiveness. Why? How? Because this community's life was rooted in the Jesus story. It was defined by the reality of what Jesus had done for them. They realized that they had been forgiven for so much, that God had been so kind to them despite their rebellion and their sin and their brokenness, that when the rubber actually hit the road and pain unimaginable, Their worldview provided for them, and there's a spiritual dynamic here, of course. The Holy Spirit provided for them the resources, the ability to be able to say, We forgive you. We love you. And now, this single mom and her three children in this Amish community live as one. Is it possible to hold convictions without oppressing others? It's really hard. But I think it is possible. And I think Jesus provides something that our culture is deeply longing for and doesn't even know it. And so the question for us this morning are we a gracious community are we a gracious community that in some way reflects the radical grace that we have been shown and has been given to us have we allowed the christian story the jesus story to inform all of our lives. If not, then there's a beautiful reality etched right into the Christian story that says it's okay, there's still forgiveness for you. So humble yourself, repent, and come to Jesus. And that's the invitation for all of us this morning is to come to Jesus. Recognize that he's loving, gracious, kind, and humble. And he invites us, despite where we are, despite where we've been, despite how far we think we have gone from him, he invites us to come to him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know not what else to say. But just sense in this moment, just as I'm faced with these realities, I'm not there yet. I need more of you. Sometimes I have a hard time liking myself, forget about other people. And Jesus, thank you for your words that you will never leave nor forsake, and that you invite us to come, that you're, you're loving, and gentle, You want us. Jesus' name. Amen.